for the love of reading, featuring selections from novels, complete short stories, poetry, and nonfiction, read for you by Linda Pack. The First Amendment to the United States Constitution reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. So will we citizens of modern times in the United States hold these truths to be self-evident, as one of our favorite presidents said, but the written word has always been seen as dangerous, especially when the writing concerned religion or politics or sex and also was readily available to a literate public. When Johann Gutenberg invented the printing press in 1450, he jump-started the creation of a literate public, and by 1490, barely 40 years later, Germany's first official censorship office was established to ban dangerous publications. Seventy-five years after Gutenberg's invention, in England, during the reign of King Henry VIII, Thousands of copies of William Tyndale's English translation of the New Testament, which had been printed in Germany, were seized and publicly burned. Tyndale's books had been banned by a royal proclamation in 1530, the crime being that it was in English. Translating the Bible into any vernacular language from the Latin, which was almost exclusively read only by the clergy, was heretical and forbidden. Owning a copy of Tyndale's Bible was a death sentence. Tyndale wrote, It is impossible to establish in people any truth unless the scriptures be laid before their eyes in their mother tongue and he was condemned as a heretic, degraded from the priesthood, and delivered to the secular authorities by order of the Inquisition. He was strangled and burned at the stake. So here is that seditious Tyndale's Bible. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. The earth was void and empty, and darkness was upon the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the water. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and divided the light from the darkness, and called the light day, and the darkness night. And so of the evening and morning was made the first day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of heaven to shine upon the earth. And so it was. And God made two great lights, a greater light to rule the day, and a less light to rule the night, and he made stars also. And God put them in the firmament of heaven to shine upon the earth, and to rule the day and the night, and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. That sound familiar? 
That's because the scholars of the late 1500s and early 1600s who produced authorized and sanctioned English versions of the Bible drew significantly from Tyndale's work. About 75% of the King James Bible version is Tyndale's words. Well, about the same time as Tyndale was writing, the Polish scientist Nicholas Copernicus was preparing his revolutionary work, no pun intended, oh yes, pun intended, on the revolutions of the heavenly spheres. But uh, trying to avoid the possible furor his work might incite, Copernicus purposely delayed publishing it until just before his death. And he dedicated his book to the Pope. <laughs> so it was published in 1543. And here are excerpts from Copernicus's eloquent preface to On the Revolutions of the Heavenly Spheres. Diligent reader, in this work, which has just been created and published, you have the motions of the fixed stars and planets. These motions have been reconstituted on the basis of ancient as well as recent observations. They have, moreover, been embellished by new and marvelous hypotheses. Therefore, buy, read, and enjoy this work. But let no one untrained in geometry enter here. <clears throat> the dedication to His Holiness Pope Paul the <clears> Third. <throat> I can readily imagine, Holy Father, that as soon as some people hear that in this volume, in which I have written about the revolutions of the spheres of the universe, that I ascribe certain motions to the terrestrial globe, they will shout that I must immediately be repudiated together with this belief. The consensus of many centuries have sanctioned the conception that the earth remains at rest in the middle of the heaven and is its center. There are those who will regard it as an insane pronouncement if I should make the opposite assertion that the earth moves. Therefore, I have dedicated my studies to your holiness rather than to anyone else, for even in this very remote corner of the earth where I live, you are considered the highest authority by virtue of the loftiness of your office and your love for all literature and astronomy too. Hence, by your prestige and judgment, you can easily suppress attacks. Although, as the proverb has it, there is no remedy for a backbite. Astronomy is written for astronomers. To them my work will seem, uh, unless I am mistaken, to make some contribution to the Church, at the head of which Your Holiness now stands. And lest I appear to Your Holiness to promise more about the usefulness of this volume than I can fulfill, I now turn to the work itself. <clears throat> book One, Revolutions, Introduction among the many various literary and artistic pursuits which invigorate men's minds, the strongest affection and utmost zeal should, I think, promote studies concerned with the most beautiful objects.
hearts, the most deserving to be known. This is the nature of the discipline which deals with the universe's divine revolutions. For what indeed is more beautiful than heaven, which of course contains all things of beauty? If then the value of the arts is judged by the subject matter with which they treat, the art that will be foremost is astronomy. Mathematics, arithmetic, geometry, optics, surveying, mechanics, and whatever others there are all contribute to it. Since all good arts serve to draw man's mind away from vices and lead it toward better things, will not the unremitting contemplation of astronomy reach to admiration for the maker of everything? Copernicus's book was not immediately banned. But in 1559, a mere 16 years later, in reaction to the spread of Protestantism and scientific inquiry, the Roman Catholic Church issued the Index Librorium Prohibitorium, likely the first published and certainly the most notorious of the list of forbidden books. Copernicus's book was placed on the list in 1616, and by that time Galileo's studies of physical properties and his astron astronomical observations were upsetting accepted scientific theories. Galileo was a gadfly and not uh, satisfied with just generally upsetting all apple carts he could and noting how they fell. In 1632, Galileo published a book called A Dialogue Concerning the Two Chief World Systems. In it, he presents his arguments for a heliocentric system. The Catholic Church ordered Galileo to stand trial for heresy by the Inquisition, and he was convicted for following the position of Copernicus, which is contrary to the true sense and authority of Holy Scripture. Remember, God created a greater light and placed it in the firmament to shine upon the earth and rule the day. So Galileo was forced to recant his theory and was placed under house arrest for the rest of his life. And his book was officially banned, as well as any past and any future works. But here is the note that Galileo wrote in his own hand on the very first pages of his very own copy of the dialogue concerning the two chief world systems. Take note, theologians, that in your desire to make matters of faith out of propositions relating to the fixity of the sun and earth, you run the risk of eventually having to condemn as heretics those who would declare that the earth stands still and the sun changes its position. Eventually, I say, at such a time as it might be physically or logically proved that the earth moves and the sun stands still. The Catholic Church continued to print this Index Librorium Prohibitorium, the Index of Prohibited Books, which grew to 5,000 titles until 1966. And then Pope Paul VI terminated the publication. 
in America. The incident considered to be the first book burning took place in 1650, when a religious pamphlet was confiscated by Puritan authorities in Massachusetts and burned in the Boston marketplace. We'll now fast forward 200 years to 1852, when Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin famously was banned in the South for holding pro-abolitionist views and arousing debates on slavery. Many scholars say that its publication sparked the public sentiment for the Civil War. 130 years later, in 1982, the American Library Association launched Banned Book Week to promote and protect the freedom to express one's opinions, even if that opinion might be considered unorthodox or unpopular, and to ensure the availability of those viewpoints to all who wish to read them. Every year since 1990, the American Library Association Office for Intellectual Freedom compiles a list of the ten most challenged books of the previous year. A challenge is an attempt to remove or restrict materials from a curriculum or a library. Banning is the actual removal of these materials. So here are a few titles from the top ten lists of 2019 and 2020. To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. It was banned and challenged for use of racial slurs promoting racial hatred, featuring a white savior character, and its perception of the black experience, and also because the book contains profanity, and contains adult themes such as sexual intercourse, rape, and incest. These are all quotes from the challenges. The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison which was banned and challenged because it was considered sexually explicit and depicts child sexual abuse. The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas, which was challenged for profanity and was thought to promote an anti-police message. The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, banned and challenged for profanity and for vulgarity and sexual overtones. The Harry Potter series by J.K. Rowling was banned and forbidden from discussion for referring to magic and witchcraft and containing actual curses and spells and for characters that use nefarious means to attain goals. The Captain Underpants series, written and illustrated by Dave Pilkey. And the reasons? Well, the series was challenged because it was perceived as encouraging disruptive behavior while Captain Underpants and the sensational saggy saga of Sir Stinks-a-Lot was challenged for including a same-sex couple. I'm now going to read you some selections from four different books that have been challenged and banned in the United States and let you guess what they are. This will not be hard. You will probably recognize each one instantly. They're quite famous. And here's a hint. <clears throat> Three out of the four are by American authors. For this first selection, we are in chapter 18, so we are already deeply into this novel. 
Chapter 18 A Flood of Sunshine Arthur Dimsdale gazed into Hester's face with a look in which hope had out, indeed, but with a kind of horror at her boldness. But Hester Prynne, with a mind of native courage and activity, and for so long a period not merely estranged but outlawed from society, had wandered without rule or guidance in a moral wilderness as vast, as intricate and shadowy as the untamed forest. For years past she had looked from this estranged point of view at human institutions, and whatever priests or legislatures had established, her fate and fortunes had set her free. The scarlet letter was her passport into regions where other women dared not tread. Shame, despair, solitude, these had been her teachers, stern and wild ones, and they had made her strong. The minister, on the other hand, had never gone through an experience calculated to lead him beyond the scope of generally received laws. At the head of the social system, as clergymen of that day stood, he was only the more trammelled by its regulations, its principles, and even its prejudices. For Hester Prynne, the whole seven years of outlaw and ignominy had been little other than a preparation for this very hour. "'Let us not look back,' said Hester, calmly, as he met her glance. "'The past is gone. Wherefore should we linger upon it now? See, with this symbol I undo it all and make it as if it had never been.' So speaking, she undid the clasp that fastened the scarlet letter, and taking it from her bosom, threw it to a distance among the withered leaves. The stigma gone, Hester heaved a long, deep sigh, in which the burden of shame and anguish departed from her spirit. Oh, exquisite relief! She had not known the weight until she felt the freedom. By another impulse, she took off the formal cap that confined her hair, and down it fell upon her shoulders, dark and rich, and at once a shadow and a light in its abundance, and imparting the charm of softness to her features. There played around her mouth and beamed out of her eyes a radiant and tender smile, which seemed gushing from the very heart of womanhood. A crimson blush was glowing on her cheek that had been so long pale. Her sex, her youth, and the whole richness of her beauty came back, and a happiness before unknown within the magic circle of this hour. All at once... As with a, a sudden smile of heaven burst forth the sunshine, pouring a very flood into the obscure forest, gladdening each green leaf, transmuting the yellow fallen ones to gold, and gleaming adown the grey trunks of the solemn trees. Such was the sympathy of nature, that wild heathen nature of the forest never subjugated by human law, nor illumined by a higher truth. With the bliss of these two spirits, love, whether newly born 
or aroused from a death-like slumber, must always create a sunshine, filling a heart so full of radiance that it overflows upon the outward world. Did you guess what that was? Yes, it is The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. The Scarlet Letter was a historical novel when it was written in 1850, since it takes place in the mid-1600s, in the early days of the Puritan Massachusetts Bay Colony. It was immediately controversial, and interestingly, was immediately banned in 1852 in Russia by Nicholas I, and also as recently as 1961 and 1977. It was banned from schools as being pornographic and obscene. The next selection is also from a chapter past the midpoint of the book. I'll tell you what it is after the passage. See if you recognize it. <sighs> I went to the raft and sat down to think, but I couldn't come to nothing. I thought till I wore my head sore, but I couldn't see no way out of the trouble. After all this long journey, after all we'd done for them scoundrels, and here it was all come to nothing, everything all busted up and ruined because they would have the heart to make Jim a slave again, and amongst strangers, too, for forty dirty dollars. Once, I said to myself, be a thousand times better for Jim to be a slave at home where his family was, as long as he's got to be a slave, and... So I'd better write a letter to tell Miss Watson where he was. But I soon give up that notion. She'd be mad and disgusted at his rascality and the ungratefulness for leaving her, and so she'd sell him straight down the river again. And then think of me, would get all around that I'd helped a slave to get his freedom. The more I studied about this, the more my conscience went to grinding me, and the more wicked and low-down and ornery I got to feeling. At last, when it hit me, all of a sudden that here was the plain hand of Providence slapping me in the face and letting me know my wickedness was being watched all the time from up there in heaven whilst I was stealing a poor old woman's slave. I almost dropped in my tracks. I was so scared. Well, I tried the best I could to kind of soften it up somehow for myself by saying I was brung up wicked. And so I warn't so much to blame, but something inside of me kept saying, there was the Sunday school, you could have gone to it, and if you'd have done it, if you'd have learnt you there that people that acts as I've been acting about that gym goes to everlasting fire. Oh, made me sh and I made up my mind to pray and to see if I couldn't try to quit being the kind of boy I was and be better. So I kneeled down, but the words wouldn't come. Why wouldn't they? I knowed very well why they wouldn't come. It was because my heart weren't right. It was because I weren't square. 
I was trying to make my mouth say I would do the right thing and the clean thing and go and write to that owner and tell where he was, but deep down in me, I knowed it was a lie. And he knowed it. You can't pray a lie. I found that out. So I was full of trouble, full as I could be. I didn't know what to do. At last, I had an idea, and I says, I'll go and write the letter, and then see if I can pray. Why, it was astonishing, the way I felt light as a feather, right straight off, and my trouble's all gone. So I got a piece of paper and a pencil, all glad and excited, and I sat down and wrote, Miss Watson, your runaway Jim is down here two mile below Pike. And Mr. Phelps has got him, and he will give him up for the reward if you send. I felt all good, all washed clean of sin for the first time I'd ever felt so in my life, and I knowed I could pray now. But I didn't do it straight off, laid the paper down, and sat there thinking thinking how good it was all this happened so, and how near I come to being lost and going to hell, and went on thinking. Got to thinking over our trip down the river, and I see Jim before me all the time, in the day, and in the night time, sometimes moonlight, sometimes storms, and we are floating along, talking and singing and laughing and somehow I, I couldn't seem to strike no places to harden me against him but only the other kind i'd see him standing my watch on top of his and instead of calling me so i could go on sleeping and see him how glad he was when i come back out of the fog and such like times and how he would always do everything he could think of for me and how good he always was. And at last I struck the time I saved him by telling the men we had smallpox aboard, and he was so grateful, and said I was the best friend old Jim ever had in the world and the only one he's got now. And then I happened to look around and see that paper. It was a close place. I took it up and held it in my hand. I was a-trembling, because I'd got to decide forever betwixt two things, and I knowed it. I studied a minute, sort of holding my breath, and then says to myself, All right, then, I'll go to hell and tore it up. Of course, you know that was from The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain published in 1884. And by March 1885, librarians in Concord, Massachusetts banned the book, attacking the novel as absolutely immoral in its tone. They deemed it trash and suitable only for the slums. In 1902, the Brooklyn Public Library banned The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn with the statement that Huck not only itched, but he scratched, and that he said sweat when he should have said perspiration. In the 1950s, 
the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, lodged the first major complaint about the novel for using a racial slur over and over and over, 204 times throughout, making students feel marginalized and uncomfortable. At the very beginning of the text, Mark Twain has this notice. Persons attempting to find a motive in this narrative will be prosecuted. Persons attempting to find a moral in it will be banished. Persons attempting to find a plot in it will be shot by order of the author. The next selection for you to guess is from the opening of the novel. What is it? Who wrote it? It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking thirteen. Winston Smith, his chin nuzzled into his breast in an effort to escape the vile wind, slipped quickly through the glass doors of Victory Mansions, though not quickly enough to prevent a swirl of gritty dust from entering along with him. The hallway smelt of boiled cabbage and old rag mats. At one end of it was a coloured poster, too large for indoor display, that had been tacked to the wall. It depicted simply an enormous face, more than a metre wide, the face of a man of about forty-five, with a heavy black moustache and ruggedly handsome features. Winston made for the stairs. It was no use trying the lift, even at the best of times it was seldom working, and at present the electric current was cut off during daylight hours. It was part of the economy drive in preparation for hate week. The flat was seven flights up, and Winston, who was thirty-nine, and had Varagos ulcer above his right ankle, went slowly, resting several times on the way. On each landing, opposite the lift shaft, the poster with the enormous face gazed from the wall. It was one of those pictures which are so contrived that the eyes follow you about when you move. Big Brother is watching you, the caption beneath it ran. Inside the flat, a fruity voice was reading out a list of figures which had something to do with the production of pig iron. The voice came from an oblong metal plaque like a dulled mirror, which formed part of the surface of the right-hand wall. Winston turned a switch, and the voice sank somewhat, though the words were still distinguishable. The instrument, the telescreen, it could be dimmed, but there was no way of shutting it off completely. The telescreen received and transmitted simultaneously. Any sound that Winston made, above the level of a very low whisper, would be picked up by it. Moreover, so long as he remained within the field of vision which the metal plaque commanded, he could be seen as well as heard. There was, of course, no way of knowing whether you were being watched at any given moment. How often, or on what system, the thought police plugged in on any individual wire was guesswork. It was even conceivable that they watched everybody all the time. Winston kept his back turned to the telescreen. It was safer. As he well knew, even a back could also be revealing. A kilometre away was the Ministry of Truth, his place of work, and it towered vast and white over the grimy landscape. 
the Ministry of Truth, mini-true in Newspeak, was startlingly distant from any other object in sight. It was an enormous pyramidical structure of glittering white concrete, soaring up terrace after terrace, three hundred meters into the air. From where Winston stood, it was just possible to read, picked out on its white face in elegant lettering, the three slogans of the party. War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. If you guessed that that was 1984 by George Orwell, you are correct. 1984 was written in 1949. And by 1950, it was banned and burned in the USSR. Ownership meant possible arrest for its anti-communist views. And in 1981, in Florida, it was challenged for being pro-communist. And it also contained explicit sexual content. And in 2017, in Idaho, it was challenged by a parent for having violent sexually charged language. Okay, here's the last one of the guessing game. It was a pleasure to burn. It was a special pleasure to see things eaten, to see things blackened and changed. With the brass nozzle in his fists, with this great python spitting its venomous kerosene upon the world, the blood pounded in his head, and his hands were the hands of some amazing conductor, playing all the symphonies of blazing and burning to bring down the tatters and charcoal ruins of history. With his symbolic helmet, numbered 451 on his stolid head, and his eyes all orange flame with the thought of what came next, he flicked the igniter, and the house jumped up in a gorging fire that burned the evening sky red and yellow and black. He strode in a swarm of fireflies. He wanted above all, like the old joke, to shove a marshmallow on a stick in the furnace while the flapping pigeon-winged books died on the porch lawn of the house. While the books went up in sparkling whirls and blew away on a wind turned dark with burning. Montag grinned the fierce grin of all men singed and driven back by flame. He knew that when he returned to the firehouse, he might wink at himself, a minstrel man, burnt corked in the mirror. Later, going to sleep, he would feel the fiery smile still gripped by his face muscles in the dark. It never went away, that smile. It never, ever went away, as long as he remembered. Yes, that was Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury, which he wrote in 1951. In 2006, the parents of a 10th grade high school student in Texas challenged it due to the offensive language and the description of the burning of the Bible and protested the violence and the portrayal of Christians and depictions of firemen in the novel. 
Ray Bradbury was not silent on this. He responded very strongly to the challenges to his work. And in the preface of the final unexpurgated version of uh, his book in the 1979 edition, he wrote, Over the years, some editors at Ballantine Books, fearful of contaminating the young, had, bit by bit, censored some 75 separate sections from the novel. Students who were reading the novel, which, after all, deals with censorship and book-burning in the future, wrote to tell me of this exquisite irony. This has since been corrected. But Bradbury also pointed out, there is more than one way to burn a book, and the world is full of people running about with lit matches. The man who lit the match for modern American censorship was Anthony Comstock, the founder of the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. In 1873, using slogans such as Morals, Not Art and Literature, he convinced Congress to pass a law, thereafter known as the Comstock Law, which made it a crime, punishable in some cases with up to five years of hard labor, to, quote, publish, possess, or distribute materials of an immoral nature, or to mail anything that was obscene, lewd, or lascivious. It was the first federal law governing obscenity. It banned the mailing of materials that were found to be, quote, indecent or filthy. Between 1874 and 1915, as a special agent of the U.S. Post Office, Comstock confiscated at least 120 tons of printed works, and 3,500 people were prosecuted and about 350 convicted. Comstock wrote, Lust defiles the body, debauches the imagination, corrupts the mind, deadens the will, destroys the memory, sears the conscience, hardens the heart, and damns the soul. Which brings us to Ulysses by James Joyce and its Lapworth case. Ulysses was first serialized in parts in the United States in the literary magazine The Little Review in 1918, and it was almost immediately banned in Ireland, Canada, and England. In 1920, Anthony Comstock's New York Society for the Suppression of Vice successfully argued to have Ulysses labeled as obscene. It was thus considered contraband in America and effectively banned in the United States. And for more than a decade and throughout the 1920s, the United States Post Office seized and burned copies of the novel. In 1922, Ulysses had finally been published in its entirety, in its original language, English, of course, in Paris. In 1933... Random House, which had the rights to publish the entire book in the United States, decided to bring a test case to challenge this de facto ban. It therefore made an arrangement to import 
the edition that had been published in France and have a copy seized by the U.S. Customs Service, they then contested the seizure of the work in the United States District Court in New York City. Even though the assistant U.S. attorney who was assigned to assess the work's obscenity felt that it was, in fact, a literary masterpiece, he also believed it to be obscene within the meaning of the law and therefore not importable and subject to confiscation and destruction. This was what set up the test case. The federal case against the novel, which was called The United States versus One Book Called Ulysses, had three lines of attack. The first, it was blasphemous, particularly in its treatment of the Roman Catholic Church. The second, it brought to the surface coarse thoughts and desires that were usually repressed. These attributes were perceived as a threat to long-held and dearly cherished moral, religious, and political beliefs. And third, the work had unparlor-like language and contained sexual titillation, especially Molly Bloom's soliloquy. Random House argued that the work was not obscene, but rather a classic work of literature, and was protected by the First Amendment to the United States Constitution, which protects free expression. The decision was handed down on December 6, 1933. Judge John M. Woolsey ruled that Ulysses was not pornographic, that nowhere in it was the leer of the sensualist. Acknowledging the astonishing success of Joyce's use of the stream-of-consciousness technique, the judge stated that the novel was serious and that its author was sincere and honest in showing how the minds of his characters operate and what they were thinking. Some of their thoughts, the judge said, were expressed in old Anglo-Saxon words, but, quote, to have failed to honestly tell fully what his characters thought would have been artistically inexcusable. Consequently, Ulysses was not obscene and could be admitted into the United States. Wasting no time, Random House published Ulysses in January of 1934. This was the first legal publication of the work in any English-speaking nation. And here is the very last chapter of Ulysses, that infamous finale, Molly Bloom's soliloquy. I love flowers. I'd love to have the whole place swimming in roses. God of heaven, there is nothing like nature. The wild mountains and then the sea and the waves rushing. Then the beautiful country with the fields of oats and wheat and all kinds of things and all the fine cattle going on about would do your heart good to see. Rivers and lakes and flowers, all sorts of shapes and smells and colours springing up even out of the ditches, primroses and violets. Nature it is. As for them saying there is no God, I wouldn't give a snap of my two fingers for all their learning. 
Why don't they go and create something, I've often asked them. Atheists, whatever they call themselves. Go and wash the cobbles off themselves first. And then they go howling for the priest, and they're dying. And why? Why? Because they're afraid of hell on account of their bad conscience. <laughs> ah, yes, I know them well. Who was the first person in the universe before there was anybody that made it all? Who? <laughs> that they don't know. Uh, neither do I. So there you are. I might as well try to stop the sun from rising tomorrow. Oh, the sun shines for you, he said. The day we were lying among the rhododendrons, in the grey tweed suit and his straw hat, the day I got him to propose to me. Yes. First I gave him a bit of seed cake out of my mouth, and it was leap year like now. Yes, sixteen years ago. My God. After that first long kiss, I near lost my breath. Yes, he said, I was the flower of the mountain. Yes, so we are flowers all, a woman's body, yes. That was one true thing, he said in his life. And the sun shines for you today. Yes, that was why I liked him. "'because I saw he understood, felt what a woman is, "'and I knew I could always get round him, "'and I gave him all the pleasure I could, "'leading him on till he asked me to say yes, "'and I wouldn't answer first, "'only looked out over the sea and the sky. "'He was thinking of so many things he didn't know of. "'The sentry in front of the governor's house, "'with the thing round his white helmet.' Poor devil, half-roasted. And the Spanish girls laughing in their shawls and their tall combs. And the Ocrans in the morning. The Greeks and the Jews and the Arabs. And the devil knows who else from all the ends of Europe. And the poor donkeys slipping half asleep. And the vague fellas in the cloaks asleep in the shade on the steps. And the big wheels of the carts of the bulls. And the old castle, thousands of years old. Yes, those handsome moors, all in white and turbans like kings, asking you to sit down in their little bit of a shop, and the old windows of the posadas. Two glancing eyes, a lattice, hid for her lover to kiss the iron. And the wine shops half open at night, and the castanets. And the night we miss the boat at Algeciras, the watchman going about serene with his lamp. And oh, that awful deep-down torrent. And oh, and the sea, the sea, crimson sometimes like fire. And the glorious sunsets, and the fig trees in the Alameda Gardens. And yes, all the queer little streets, and the pink, and the blue, and the roses, and the rose gardens, and the jasmine, and the geraniums, and cactuses, and Gibraltar. As a girl, where I was, the flower of the mountain, yes, when I put the rose in my hair, like the Andalusian girls used. Or shall I wear a red? Yes.
and how he kissed me under the moorish wall and i thought to hell as well him as another and then i asked him with my eyes to ask me again yes and then he asked me would i yes to say yes my mountain flower and first i put my arms around him yes and drew him down to me so he could feel my breasts all perfume yes and his heart was going like mad and yes i said yes i will yes you have just heard in spite of or perhaps because of its notorious publishing history molly bloom's soliloquy the final pages of james joyce's magnificent novel ulysses although aspects of the comstock laws have been repealed or reshaped by the courts based on first amendment appeals it is thanks to the commitment of librarians and teachers and parents and students and other concerned citizens that in the united states most challenges to books are unsuccessful and most materials are retained censorship of constitutionally protected speech for any reason violates the first amendment in nineteen fifty three supreme court justice william o douglas wrote free speech has occupied an exalted position because of the high service it has given our society its protection is essential to the very existence of a democracy it has been the safeguard of every religious political philosophic economic and racial group amongst us free speech has been the one single outstanding tenant that has made our institutions the symbol of freedom and equality and that is all for this edition of for the love of reading challenged and censored the material read on this edition of for the love of reading was selected reviewed edited and performed by linda pack the program was engineered by alicia bales this program is archived and available for online listening at kzyx.org and at lindapack.net you will find podcast and audio links to all of the shows aired on For the Love of Reading. This podcast was produced by KZYX-FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, local community radio from Mendocino County, California. If you enjoyed the program and you'd like to hear more, in Northern California you can tune in anytime to KZYX at 90.7 FM in Philo, KZYZ at 91.5 FM in Willits and Ukiah, and 88.1 FM in Fort Bragg. If you're listening to this podcast from further away, we also stream live 24 hours a day at kzyx.org, where you can hear our eclectic range of locally produced music, public affairs, and news, along with daily state and national news programs and breaking news. You can also find out how to become a member to keep KZYX on the air. Thank you for listening. <laughs>